And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. New VanCast to start the week. Jay Patton Drancer with you here and Tom. Uh, they're not sponsors of ours, but I'm kind of feeling like we should work some sort of deal with Skip the Dishes, or at least Skip the Dish Washing at the very <laughs> least here on the pod. What the hell happened last week? I don't have an answer for you. Like, I, I honestly, you know, ever since Chris Faber called me out, like, I've been really worried, like, nervous, uh, in my head, self-aware about the fact that my audio quality needs to upgrade. So I was sitting on my couch... Nothing was happening. My dog was asleep throughout the podcast. You know, my usual sort of guest, our usual third member of the podcast, Wallace, was sleeping at my feet. And I was like, honestly, just focused on making sure that my microphone was like close to my mouth, that I didn't wander, that I had good technique. Like, I was just trying to make sure the podcast sounded good. Um, I certainly wasn't washing any dishes. And then, of course, we publish and and my mentions all weekend and the comment section of, of the podcast itself. Everyone's just like, hey, you're washing the dishes. It's like, I mean, I know that I aspire in life to be like a sexy Mr. Clean, but I did not do a single dish. I promise. I promise. I was just sitting trying to do a good podcast. No idea what happened. And so now I've moved rooms. I've, I've moved into a flex space in my house, like a smaller space. I'm hoping that fixes our issue here, Jacob. I can't wait as we dive deep onto the Canucks and all of a sudden hear the vacuum. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What cleaning activity will I try today? <laughs> Leave the windows. The windows can wait, Tom. You can clean those after the pod. Um, okay. Well, I, I, that was, yeah. Like, I, I had no idea because when, when we put the thing to bed, I think it was Friday's episode, and then, like, I saw some comments on Twitter, but also, you know, we always say at the end, like, you know, leave us a message or leave us a comment on the on the app. And, like, the comment section was full of people that were just freaking out about the dishes. So I had no idea what was going on. But 
Yeah, I will. I, I can assure you, not a single dish was washed during the recording of the VanCast. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. Um, but yeah, anyway, hopefully we'll uh, hopefully we'll have a cleaner episode today in terms of my end of the audio quality. I'm sure we will. I'm uh, I'm doing nothing different than uh, usual, except that I'm in a different room. All right. It is June 14th as we record this. Tomorrow, the 15th, obviously the 10-year anniversary of Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. Now, you and I uh, are on the same page on this. I don't think either one of us has much of an appetite to revisit the series game by game, moment by moment, uh, relive the details. I, I kind of feel like we did a ton of that with the Sedins announcing their retirement and then when their jerseys went to the rafters and when Alex Burroughs had his name into the Ring of Honor, like a, a lot of 2011 was brought back into the present then. So it's a Canuck podcast. I mean, I think it's important that we mark the occasion at the very least, but uh, I, I just, I'm not feeling it. I just am not feeling this need to sort of go back down the road of all of the events that led to Game 7 and then obviously the aftermath. Yeah, and I mean... I agree with you. Like, you know, it, it, we've done it. I feel like it's just, we've done it. You know, there used to be, what does it matter that it was 10 years ago, aside from it being sort of a snapshot of our lives, right? Like, you know, I was l listening to a lot of rural Alberta advantage and <laughs> uh, enjoying the summer of 2011. It was a beautiful summer. As I recall, times were simpler. JPAT. Uh, the Canucks lost. They lost to the Bruins. They got, Unduly injured. The Aaron Rome suspension remains unprecedented in the annals of NHL playoff history. Um, especially for, you know, a non-repeat offender. Uh, the Game 7 was a gas job, right? Like a, a painful gas job. They, they completely outplayed, you know, there was never a moment where it felt like they were going to win, right? And the crowd was nervous throughout, too. That's That can't be ignored. Uh, so it was Big Z and the Boston Bruins. They they raised the Stanley Cup, you know, on Vancouver ice. And, uh, you know, some of my favorite stories about that day are not the stories of the game itself, but are things like how the two teams approached it differently. Like one thing that stands out in my head is that the Canucks had this idea that they'd go about their business normally, right? That they'd hold morning skate, that they'd, you know, it was another game. It was just another game. And, you know, in retrospect, I think a lot of people who were there, a lot of people who played in that game, coached that game, managed that game, reflect and say, you could have cut the tension at Rogers Arena that morning with a knife. Like, how is that helpful? The Bruins, meanwhile, held a practice the day before and never came to the rink on Game 7. They did like a limited players media availability at the hotel. Um, they avoided uh, much of anything until the game started. I think when you reflect on it, that's something that perhaps the Canucks would want to mulligan on, something that perhaps Claude Julian um, nailed uh, in terms of that overall decision-making. And then the other one that I've heard a lot of is from the Canucks locker room. From the Canucks locker room after the Bruins won, you could hear them. Like, you could hear the celebration right. as just a few meters down the way, you know, the Bruins tore apart uh, in celebration the, visitor, the visiting room. Um, you know, obviously there's good stories about the logistics and, and everything that pertain to the riot, right? How, how tough it was to sort of get out of there for the Bruins. Uh, you know, I've heard a lot of those stories too, but 
the, the two sort of indelible impressions that I have about that day, having talked to a ton of people involved on both the winning and the losing side over the years, um, the fact that Canucks players and personnel could hear the celebrations has always sounded like a, an abject cruelty to me. And of course, the fact that they approached game day preparations so differently, I think is a, is a fascinating sort of takeaway or a, or a key lesson on not just why that Canucks team fell short, but I also think on the overall Stanley Cup playoff drought that Canada has endured, right? Which to me has to have something to do with the unique pressures of playing in Canadian marketplaces, of getting to the brink as so many Canadian teams, or at least Western Canadian teams, have over the past 20 years um, without actually getting it done. I mean, there's a whole bunch of memories, obviously. I was there day in, day out. I didn't travel back then, but everybody else at 1040 did. And so, like, (laughs) I remember it was hard to find fill-ins to host radio shows because all the regular hosts were coming and going. Uh, So much travel between the days, and there was a 24-hour span that I hosted three separate radio shows because they just, they didn't have the bodies (laughs) necessary. I slept at the radio station one night because I did a post-game show, and then I had to do the morning show the following morning. Uh, I mean, I've spoken at length about hosting the the Game 7 post-game that went right through the night, through the riots, and, and everything else, but... What I remember about the run is, like, it's 25 additional games. Like, an 82-game season is a lot of hockey. We know that. Uh, We've both done it now for a bunch of years. But then you tack on 25 games every other night. And, like, I mean, there's a beauty to that, that they're still playing and that the stakes are going up as they go through this thing. Uh, And and if you see, you know, any of the old YouTube video of, uh, you know, those crowds that gathered on Georgia Street, like, the crowds are incredible, mm. but it was the weather. Like, it's June. Like, I mean, you'd expect the weather. But it was. It just seemed like every game day in Vancouver was like, a, you know, just a 10-alarm, sunny, gorgeous day. And I just that was sort of a recollection of mine. Because the deeper you get in the playoffs, the, the league schedules the games for 5 o'clock Pacific. So, they were earlier right. starts than normal. You know, you'd be making your way down in mid-afternoon, and it was just absolutely glorious. And you're thinking, like, I'm going into a hockey rink on a day like today. But of course you are, because it's, now it's the Stanley Cup final. And it was just, uh, it was incredible to be able to do that every other day for essentially two months. Like, it was just hard to come up for air, but it was glorious. And I, I can't wait for the Canucks to get back to that position somewhere, some way, somehow. Because uh, it was just, I mean, obviously it didn't end well for the team or the city, but... The build-up and just that atmosphere for two months was incredible. Uh, you know, I was in the Canuck locker room post-game, and it's funny the things you remember. For some reason, all these years later, I still remember talking to Chris Higgins. Like, you can imagine, the Canucks absolutely crushed. Their dream has died in front of them on home ice. Uh, everything they'd lived and played for, and they come up short. And so there weren't a lot of players. It wasn't a typical post-game. And and usually, I mean, deep into the playoffs, you're doing everything league-controlled at podiums and those types of things. But for the final game, they open the Canucks locker room, and we all go in as media, and there's no players in there. They're, you know, you can understand. They're in the back rooms. They're not just hanging around. And, and Chris Higgins was one of the first guys out, and I can see it clear as day, just like, he didn't have to say anything like the look and the pain on his face. And as he tried to articulate, you know, that crushing feeling of defeat, uh, 
you know, you feel for a guy. Like, this was their moment. It was supposed to happen for them, and obviously it didn't. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I remember all these years. I don't recall hearing the Bruins down the hall, but you think about it. I mean, those two dressing rooms aren't separated that far. We saw it with Torts. It's it's not that far to go. And so, you know, I guess it wouldn't surprise me in hindsight now to think about, like, yeah, you got one group that's just whooping it up in their own room, and, you know, 60 feet down the hall, you got the Canucks that are still trying to process all of this. So again, I mean, a, just a, a glorious time up until game seven. And and in that series, we knew the Canucks struggles to score. The team that had scored first had won every game. And so when the Bruins opened the scoring, you know, you don't want to believe that it's over, but man, that didn't uh, sort of bode well for the Canucks in that moment or on that night. And, and ultimately uh, it didn't go their way. So uh, it just a shitty, shitty ending to an amazing season for the Vancouver Canucks. And here we are all these years later. And, and as I said, I didn't want to get deep into the, the game by game. But, you know, I just, when I think of the struggles of the organization the last bunch of years, like I do hope, I hope it happens sooner rather than later that they can get back to being that type of contender. Because it was just, it truly was an amazing time to be in this kind of job, to be around this team and this city. And you hope that one of these years they they figure it out no and they, they get it right. And fundamentally, too, I think there is an analogy that's worth making between the 10-11 group and what we're seeing this offseason in Vancouver. And I've made this before at length, but I think it's worth repeating here as we pivot to, you know, from 2011 into the rest of this podcast and the rest of this offseason for, for Vancouver, which is that, you know, the year before that run, 0910, uh, Ryan Kessler expires as a 75 point center who's a Selkie nominee making 1.75 cap hit. <laughs> um, that deal expires at the end of 0910. Roberto Luongo is making 7.5 in salary, 6.75 cap hit. We all know well before the beginning of the 0910 season that he signed a lifetime extension, a contract that in his own words sucks. Then the Twins, who expired in 0809, they were at 3.575 in 0809. They went to six thereafter, or 6.1 on five year deals. Um, you know, essentially what you've got there is a less extreme version of what the Canucks are working through right now, right? I mean, you combine the twins with Kessler and Luongo, you're talking about four guys who are taking up $16 million against a $60 million cap, and all of a sudden, you know, they balloon up to, um, you know, $25, $25 million, right? They all expire at the same time. They're all retained. They're, they all have to be retained in a way that doesn't completely hose the Canucks in terms of the overall cap situation. Right now... You've got Demko having already signed his extension. He's going from one to five next year. And you've got negotiations with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Those are active talks at the moment. This is not one where the club is eager to kick the can down to the road to the eve of training camp, right? They want these deals done. And ideally, if they can, they are motivated to try and get these deals done before the meat of the offseason sort of grinds into gear here. Uh, there's value in having some certainty about where exactly those deals are coming in. And that's why conversations have continued at pace. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're it's close, but I, I think there's some positive momentum 
on both sides. Uh, an interesting development and probably welcome news for Canucks fans that would like to see this front office be proactive. Now, once all of these deals are done, you're looking at a group of three players, a goalie and a forward and a defender who are going to jump from, you know, something like three million combined and <laughs> less than three million combined to what, five plus six and a half plus seven. Let's just say that is sort of a relatively conservative. So from three to 18 million, that's much more dramatic when the, than what the Canucks went through the last time. That's the nature of the entry level system, but it nonetheless sort of underscores the fact that what this team's big picture challenge is today isn't too different from what it was for the Canucks in 08, 09, uh, 09, 10, which is how do you both retain your best players and build a better core around them, including a revamped bottom six and a rebuilt blue line, right? Um, in a hard cap system, while your core pieces get more expensive to a man. That is the challenge for the Canucks this summer. That's the challenge for the Canucks next summer too, although their cap space will be, uh, you know, they'll have a lot to play with. They'll have a lot of flexibility next summer that they don't this year. Um, that's the fundamental challenge. And that's sort of a way that I've always built a through line from 10-11 and the challenges that came in constructing that club, the best club we've ever seen in franchise history, with the club today. And, and how they take that next step while needing to fundamentally redesign the blue line and get some significantly more meaningful contributions from their bottom six. Um, that's the through line. That is how these two sides connect. That is the challenge facing Jim Benning and Connects Management as they look to get this club back to the heights um, of 2011. Uh, heights, which, of course, ultimately ended just short of the ultimate goal. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Tom, uh, we talked about uh, the aggressiveness, that the aggression that we're going to see from the Vancouver Canucks here in the offseason, but they have some housekeeping to do as well, and that's to try to figure out what to do with their pending UFAs. They've got three that are sort of a higher profile than the rest of the group, Adler, obviously, uh, Brandon Sutter, and Travis Hamanick. And I know that uh, you've got a piece up now at The Athletic sort of looking at some of the pros and cons of bringing those three, or at least considering bringing those three back. Yeah, and so I, I go through this exercise every year with the club's key UFAs and, and RFAs in preparation for the offseason, and I, I take Dom's model. So Dom Lecision at The Athletic has the game score value-added metric, and the game score value-added uh, value metric, the GSVA metric, is what he inputs into his projection model, which beats the betting markets year after year. 
So there's some heft here, right? There's some, there's some heft here, but more importantly, from my perspective, is it gives me a baseline, like an aging curve baseline for what a player is and what you can expect him to contribute, not just next season, but for, for several years beyond. And, and again, this is just a tool, right? This model, especially when you're talking about four players on the other side of 30, right, is going to cast their future contributions in a harsh light, right? GSVA, like, it, you know, no one's ever going to project a 45-point pace season from Jason Spezza at 38, but it happens. It's sports, right? This is not the full picture. It's just a tool that you can use to sort of give yourself a baseline and at least sort of illuminate some of the risks and some of the overall sort of baseline performance things that can be reasonably expected based on, you know, historical precedent, the data, and the player's actual contributions over the past few years. So I go through this exercise again, not to be like the final word on how the Canucks should proceed, but just as a like gut check, like here's what the model says, you know, why or why not would you bet on this being different? And in Hamannick, Sutter, and Edler's case, I think we're we're in a really interesting spot for a couple of reasons. One is the free agent market as a whole has been completely upended by the pandemic. Like in terms of the on ice product, the hockey business obviously is <laughs> been turned on its head. But perhaps no area has been more impacted than UFAs, right? Like than unrestricted free agency. I mean, you think about a former MVP signing a one year deal last year, right? Or Mike Hoffman and Mikhail Granlund waiting until the right. eve of training yeah. camp to sign their contracts or even the Tyler to Foley valuation, right? Like I would even, even after the pandemic had started, if you told me four times four, um, you know, four times under five for, for to I would have thought that's insane. That's way low. You know um, now granted we did see some Jacob Markstrom type deals, right? There were some players who signed sticker shock, valuations at sticker shock valuations but that was the exception right and that was, by no means was that the rule last year all of a sudden one of the most inefficient markets in hockey became a source of real value for teams that minded intelligently uh, some teams like the florida panthers really sort of made the playoffs on the back of it and so as you look at guys like hamannick i think Edler and Sutter, you're looking across the board at three guys who are going to be motivated to stay in Vancouver, right? And you're also looking at three guys who probably aren't looking for a whole heap of term. And that sort of changes how we assess things, because really more than anything, in looking through Dom's model, you're looking and valuing and weighting more heavily than you would have than I would have last year in, in sort of analyzing a Toffoli extension. Um, you're looking at shorter term deals and probably more team friendly valuations in terms of the overall cap hit. And, you know, one thing that stuck out to me about this exercise that I wouldn't have necessarily expected before going through it is that GSVA by far thinks that the Canucks best bet. The model would suggest strongly just the data that the Canucks best bet of mining surplus value from one of their expiring UFAs is by signing Alex Edler to a relatively team-friendly one- or two-year deal. Like, GSVA thinks that if the Canucks signed Edler to something like, you know, two times five million, right, that that would be a deal that's likely to return surplus value, particularly as Edler probably has another year left as a top-four quality contributor. Uh, that's not something I would have guessed before I went through the exercise, but I think that's right. a really yep. interesting, that's, that's why a model is useful. Because, you know, I can say, like, well, Edler only had eight points, right? Like, his offensive contributions are really declining and his speeds, you know, uh, getting exposed against top competition and 
you know, I'm not sure about this, but GSVA sort of looks at it and looks at his offensive production and says, hey, you know, look, looks pretty percentage based. His two way impact, he's still a net positive. Um, he's probably got another year as a top four quality contributor. I, I found that to be a, a super useful takeaway, uh, especially because, you know, Travis Hamanick scores out as a bottom pair contributor, still an everyday defenseman for probably a couple more seasons here. Still like a guy who can play in your top six every day. Not a depth guy necessarily, but, uh, you know, the model's way higher on Edler. And and I thought that was an interesting gut check uh, for the VIPs, and, and I was happy to present it as such. Um, and then, you know, Brandon Sutter, it's an interesting one because the model expects Brandon Sutter to be replacement level next year, right away. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about bringing back Brandon Sutter. I don't know if we've done it on the podcast or in private. But I've sort of had this idea that if you bring Brandon Sutter back and he's your fourth line right wing, <laughs> you know, that's not the worst place for him. Like he can play center, he can play right wing. He's obviously trusted to move up the lineup. He can help you on the PK. What, what I do think you can't do is A, have commitments for fourth liners added to the books, especially this season, above the rate at which you can bury them in the AHL without cap ramifications. So that's $1.125 million next season. Um, that's that has to be like the high watermark for any new fourth line players you're bringing in for the Canucks. And the other thing is, is that, you know, there aren't a ton of good options that can play center in UFA. It's not like there's four options that you'd bet on ahead of Brandon Sutter necessarily in free agency. Like Sutter might be one of the better bounce back bets you can make. But the Canucks do need to aim higher than replacement level in fleshing out their fourth line. Right. Like they do need to find, you know, guys that are able to contribute more. And and maybe you believe Brandon Sutter can bounce back uh, if he's healthy. Certainly didn't have a awful season this past year. Um, but the model really urged caution on Sutter up, above and beyond that, which I would have personally felt or, or sort of recommended um, prior to looking at the aging curve. So those were some, some of the sort of the takeaways. That's the quick overview of the piece, but I think it's informative, especially if you just want something you know, rigorous and objective and, and firm to grasp onto and sort of, you know, waiting and coming up with um, and, sh- and sort of understanding the shape of some of the considerations that the Canucks will need to account for in proceeding with negotiations with their own UFAs here. Yeah, and we've like we've stated for the record, we both think a lot of Brandon Sutter, the human being. Uh, injuries are a massive part of his story, though, and, and you just you know, you don't know at the stage of his career if he can stay healthy. Uh, that has to be a, a red flag around Brandon Sutter. The other thing is, I would just worry if they bring him back. You know, can Travis Green help himself in situ? Like, I'm with you. Yeah, if there was fair. a way to if there was a way to lock him, <laughs> chain him to a fourth line position, and so that he had nowhere to go, there wasn't upward mobility. But we've seen that this player, this coach, there's a trust factor. You know, the gets to crunch time, and all of a sudden, Brandon Sutter. I mean, we saw it this year; he took his job back from Adam Gaudet. You know, that's my concern <laughs> right. for a team that's supposed to be trying to get better. And so, I, I'd say the story. Like, do you think there's like, is there any way that Alex Edler could get term from the Vancouver Canucks at this stage of the proceedings? Like, what? Like, well, I don't know why the Canucks wouldn't just work on a, a series of one year deals. Well, he's a, a thirty five like plus contract too, right? So any. Any term you're handing out comes with additional risk. I think that would be, you know, managing term was a big argument about the deal the last time out, right? Like that was obviously 
um, you know, a big part of the story. I, I'm sure you remember about the sort of public pressure applied uh, to the club and, and there were internal debates on the term and ultimately they managed the term and, and signed a two-year deal. Could you imagine if that had been a three-year deal though, right? Like if you had no, Edler next no. season at six, that would be a problem, right? Oh. Then you're then you're not looking at surplus value. But if you can get him one times three, there's a real chance that he outperforms that. And I actually think what's interesting is while Edler appears to still be the superior two-way piece to Hamannick, right? One thing that Hamannick has is that it's easy to plug him into this lineup. You know exactly where he'll play, right? You've got, if you bump Schmidt over to the left side, he can play with Schmidt. It's like he's glued to Hughes throughout last season. If he ends up on a third pair and he's doing the Quinn Hughes thing, but for Jack Rathbone, I think you're very happy, or, or Ole Olevi, I think you're very happy with that too, right? Like, no matter where you put him in the lineup, it makes sense immediately. The problem for Edler is if your left side of your defense includes two of Quinn Hughes, well, Quinn Hughes for sure, and then one of Jack Rathbone or Ole Olevi, you don't exactly have a guy that's going to play the types of matchup minutes that Edler is, clearly, no. right? And so how do you how do you manage the load and manage Edler's minutes to get the most out of him from an 82-game season with the blue line constructed as it is currently, right? Like the fit doesn't make sense, and yet the bet in terms of which of these guys can I sign and, and get, you know, a home run or like have them contribute beyond the value of their contract, Edler's your best bet, especially if he's you know, willing to stay at one times 2.5 or one times three, uh, that becomes a deal. You know, the GSVA says you will get surplus value out of that immediately. And, you know, that's attractive. That has to be attractive to the Canucks. I, I, so it's just an interesting dynamic because yeah, with, with Sutter too, you're right. It, the key is, is if he's signed at a level that can be buried below the line without cap ramifications. And if he's your fourth line, right wing, I don't think that's necessarily a bad situation. I think he could be a useful contributor in that spot. But I don't think he can be a useful contributor in that spot if your fourth line center is Jay Beagle, right? You can't have Beagle and Sutter on the ice at the same time because then your bottom six is not going to score, right? They're not going to spend time in zone. And you're just, you know, back to sort of fleshing out your redundancies. And Vancouver's had a ton of redundancy in the bottom six over the years uh, with a bunch of guys who you know, like they play solidly in zone, but they spend a lot of time in zone, <laughs> you know, and that's sort of been the makeup of this club's bottom six and it doesn't work. Like it's, the, oh, Tom, you need to get more from your bottom six than that. No. And you're saying like, you know, you can't have Sutter and Beagle together. There were a lot of people that were saying that the day that they signed Jay Beagle and here we are, you know, this much further down the road. And obviously we're saying that now, uh, and you're right. I have no idea sort of where Jay Beagle factors into any of this or all of this, but there is no way they can come back with those two guys. And again, it's not like coming back with those two guys. It's coming back with those two guys and somehow thinking that you're taking steps in the right direction to be a better hockey club. Yeah, no, I know. I know. And so, yeah, so it's really tough, right? Like, I, I sort of went into the exercise thinking that Sutter could provide decent value and I came out of it thinking he's actually he's actually the one that's that might be toughest to get in 
to get done in a way that actually helps the team, right? Like that might be the most dangerous landmine. Um, with the exception of, I, I do think the Hamannick one's tough because that that money in term really does need to be managed very carefully here if the club's going to get surplus value out of that deal. Like I even think at you know two point five times three years, uh, even even at that, I think that's not a deal that's likely to provide a lot of value, and that's a pretty low valuation, right? For a, for a guy who I'm sure the Canucks view based on the reviews that he's had from the coaching staff, based on his deployment view as a credible top four guy, right? The model does not view him that way. And so that's always an interesting one. Like that's, that's again, just using the tool, that's like something you have to drill down on to figure out, you know, why do we believe that the model is wrong here or what can we take from the model that we're not seeing? Uh, that, that's always sort of where things get perhaps a little interesting and, and why the exercise is valuable. Uh, last note on UFAs, by the way, JPAT. Canucks mm. aren't alone in this. Canucks aren't alone in this, but the club will definitely try, I think, to pursue... Well, I don't think. The Canucks are definitely aware of the fact that signing anyone to a deal prior to the expansion process complicates the protected list. And I do think that, you know, fundamentally with these three players, the club will, you know, have conversations, but ultimately try and get deals done after the expansion process occurs so that they, you know, don't have um, any additional signed players left unprotected to the Seattle Kraken. Uh, the Canucks aren't alone in this, right? Like, usually we'd see a ton of extensions. Like, guys like Jaden Schwartz and Gabriel Landeskog would be signed well before the opening of the market. And this year, we may see a lot of those go down to the wire as teams sort of, you know, wait um, to sign and complete deals when it's advantageous to them, likely on the other side of the frozen roster um, that comes with the, you know, five or six day expansion process in July. Uh, let's finish up with this because there was a little bit of Canuck news over the weekend. And that is that uh, Lucas Yashik uh, signed with Pelicans in the Finnish league. I just like Pelicans. Yeah. Good team name. Very um, cool. Now, you know, in and of itself, you know, is this a crushing move to the Vancouver Canucks? No, but like very quietly, he tied for the team lead in scoring in Utica this year. Yeah. And you and Harm have written extensively about what is on the farm and the farm's coming this way. And there's excitement about setting up the farm team in Abbotsford, but you do wonder like the Canucks are going to lose something to Seattle in expansion. And now Lucas Yashik has decided that he'd rather play in the Finnish league uh, than play in the American hockey league again. And maybe there's more to that story. I suppose, uh, you know, we can, try and find out on that one bottom line is like so let's just for the sake of this argument say that seattle takes jonah gadjevich after they get lured in by all those goals he scored in the american hockey league this year uh yashik's gone now gadjevich goes to seattle sven verci is no longer under the clutches of the vancouver canucks carson folk would be the highest scoring canuck prospect or player under contract to the vancouver canucks on the farm this past season uh, based on those moves. Like, oh, it, gets thin, it gets thin now. Cole Lind was hurt and didn't play an awful lot, and most of their prospects are in the NHL. We've talked about that too. But that just kind of lays out. Like, I don't know who's going to play for the Abbotsford, whatever they are, but, you know, Lucas Yashik was a guy that it's a great backstory about how hard he had to work to get out of his contract in the Czech League to get over to North America. He wanted to be here. Um you know, he hadn't had a look at the NHL level yet, but it seemed at 23 like he was progressing. 
uh, as a professional, and now for whatever reason he's decided that, uh, and maybe it's just money, maybe it's he can make more money in the, the Finnish League rather than uh, in the American Hockey League, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's not it's not great news anytime a guy that's in the fold decides that he doesn't want to be in the fold. But they do retain they retain his rights until he's an unrestricted free agent, right? Like they hold yeah. on to him for a few more years. Yeah, I mean, Lucas Yasik, I don't think was on the call up radar. Radar. I mean, you look at all the guys they called up, right? If you weren't called up this sure. year, yep. you were either Carson Folked and you were really young, right? <laughs> or you were, or or you have to have been disillusioned. Right. There's no way. There's no way around it. I don't think Lucas Yasek was at this point sort of in the club's view as like a, an NHL or long term. But there's no question that he'd shown the versatility to be at the American League level, uh, top six wing or center, play on special teams, you know, be a capable player. And, yeah, you'd, you'd like to have brought that to Abbotsford because, you know, you, you you need those guys. Like any organization needs a ton of those guys, frankly, um, especially ones that are, you know, have been around and have been drafted and developed by your own organization. Even if they top out as as organizational depth, like you still need organizational depth, right? And yeah, and if sure. if the guy defects, that's another deal you have to sign, right? And potentially, especially with the cost of living, as we all know, in the valley and in our community, right? Uh, getting a comparable player might not be easy, right? It might, it's, might not be as straightforward as it should be in terms of recruiting guys to come play in Abbotsford. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there are there are things that are negative about this, for sure, for the organization and things that they'll have to sort of do to offset it. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of where the club was at, uh, evaluating their organizational depth options, like I don't think Yasik scored as high as a Grayback, right? Or, or something like that. Uh, clearly, I, I mean uh, that's just abundantly clear, and so you know that's the type of thing that the club will have to do. Like they'll just have to go out and make sure that they have enough decent AHL level players um, to contribute next season. I, I think they will, but I, I don't think it'll be straightforward. And in Yasik's case, you know, he developed decently, but there was nothing in his scoring track record that suggested that he was you know, a future top six player at the NHL level, more, more likely to be no, a sort of no. depth piece, um, but a depth piece with some wheels and some skill <laughs> and, uh, you know, potentially more could have been mined from that in the years to come and, and still might, right? Still might. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, right? Like, I don't want to overstate it. This isn't devastating or anything, it, but but it is, you know, it is something that may impact and, and harm Abbotsford's ability to be as competitive as they'd ideally like to be uh, certainly might harm the Abbotsford AHL team's depth um, for next season. So uh, an interesting story, and, and perhaps I'll make some calls and, and see what I can see uh, over the course of this week and, and give an update on a on an episode of the VanCast a little bit later. Right. Like, I don't want to make this more than it is, but no. for a team and an organization that doesn't have a ton of depth with Seattle expansion and now this, you know, it just... Those aren't great things when you're already depleted and you're going to lose, uh, you know, a few more pieces along the way. More, more than anything, hey, we started more the- than anything, though, doesn't it just underscore the need to make that ninth overall pick? <laughs> like they just need more coming, <laughs> and and that's sort of where I come back to. Like I know this market likes to talk about trading that ninth overall pick, but it's like you really need you really need a lot more coming here, uh, especially in the years ahead, especially with 
Pedersen and Hughes and Demko all getting raises this summer and Besser next summer and then Horvat the summer after. I mean, they do need more coming for the years ahead. And, and that's sort of why this is such a crucial draft process for the Canucks. So to me, that's what this underscores uh, above all else. I want to alert the VIPs, a little blast from the past. Matt Cook, the former Canuck, is going to join Mike Russo on Straight from the Source this week at The Athletic. If you're looking for another pod option in the days ahead, I think that'll get posted midweek. So uh, check in, get an update on The Cooker, uh, see what he's up to these days uh, as well. We always say, and we did right off the top, Check our comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Suggest any household chores that Drant should be doing. Everything going better today on your end, you think? I hope so. I mean, I've washed <laughs> zero dishes, so I've got a lot of work to do after this podcast. But I'm hoping the audio is as squeaky clean as my cutlery. Oh, nicely done. <laughs> uh, hey, rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple if you're not already a subscriber. Go to theathletic.com slash vancast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 per month. All right, Drance, you are free to go about your chores for uh, this day. We'll reconvene midweek, uh, see if there's some Canuck news. Uh, hopefully there's some Canuck news. Uh, still waiting for something, anything on the Sedine file. Uh, we'll see where the Stanley Cup playoffs are by then, and uh, we'll get back at it. And, of course, we'll also be through uh, the 2011 anniversary, right? We'll be into the aftermath yeah. of uh, 2011 by then. But uh, for Drancer, it's J-Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. <laughs>